Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Uh, today is September 18th, 2015. Joining me in our virtual studio from all across the planet, uh, we have Tiffany, Erica, Doug, and Gabby. Um, and so we have our full complement of hosts today. Uh, today we have a really interesting uh, set of topics to go over. We're going to be talking about weird remedies and bulk medicine, like sticking an onion in your ear while you're sleeping, um, rubbing a raw potato on warts and then burying it in the yard to get rid of the warts, uh, drilling holes in your skull, um, leaching, uh, all sorts of other things. So we're just going to kind of have some fun here and delve into the world of weird remedies. Um, some are some are Amish, others are not. Uh, so we have uh, quite, quite a few things to talk about today. But let's um, let's start with some connecting the dots. We have some recent articles here, um, and let's see. Tiff, do you want to get us started with? Uh, took us some interesting information about polio. That polio seems to be returning. Yeah, it kind of never really left. But thanks mm, to yeah. the CDC, they convinced us all that it did. But the name of the article is Polio is Returning as Country See Rare Mutated Form of Virus Resulting from the Vaccine. It's by Aaron Baxter's Dream Media. Um, there are doctors in India uh, tracking this issue in their health system, and they found a spike, a huge spike, in young children who were crippled after receiving an oral polio vaccine. Um, they call this so-called new disease non-polio acute flaccid paralysis. Um, and in 2011, they found 47,500 cases of this acute fast flaccid paralysis. Um, and this is ironically the same year that India was declared polio-free. So uh, they stopped giving the oral polio vaccine in the U.S. in 2000 because they found that uh, the children who received that vaccine shed it and spread it to other people. But they're still giving it in developing countries, allegedly because these countries don't have the refrigeration equipment to store the regular uh, non-oral polio vaccine. So they found it not just in India, but they found it in Ukraine, Poland, Romania, Slovakia, and Hungary. Um, all these countries where it was supposedly eradicated. Um, so for the first time in about the last five years, they found that this new type of polio is caused by the polio virus type 1, and it is directly related to uh, receiving the oral polio vaccine. Um, so the, the oral polio vaccine, it contains a weakened or an attenuated form of the virus, and it can build up in your intestines, and you can shed it poop, and it spreads to other people. Um, and it can circulate in your, your gut for a long time, like up to 12 months or longer. And during this time, it can change from a less virulent form to a more virulent form that can paralyze you. So uh, there's another article related to this link at the bottom, um, again, mentioning the CDC, uh, how they perpetuate this myth that polio 
has been eradicated when it hasn't. So they just do the old bait and switch. Um, they just chant criteria. They manipulate the statistics. And they lengthen the amount of time that a person can be ill with polio to kind of disqualify certain people. Like, say, if you're only uh, paralyzed for a week versus one month, then technically you don't have polio. They require a bunch of tests that you normally don't do because couldn't tell somebody is flaccid or not. They make you uh, analyze the cerebral spinal fluid and stool. And then on top of all of that, the CDC is the only uh, agency that can make a definitive final diagnosis. So polio is back, or polio never left. It just uh, has a different name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's quite interesting. Yeah, it, it reminds me also how in other cases vaccination has changed the clinical manifestation of certain diseases like mumps, you know, Mm. and uh, appearing in later stages uh, in life or more aggressively or more um, less pronounced. So in the Mm -hmm. clinical criteria, they are so strict that, yeah, I believe it misses a lot of people. So, yeah, the polio thing is very interesting because everybody associates the word polio with something from medical history like Something from the past. Well, we can have yeah, like, something you know. from the 40s and 50s. We don't get it these days. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it kind of serves. Yeah. It kind of serves their agenda on a couple of different levels. Like for one thing, it makes everybody think that the polio vaccine was very successful, that it actually managed to eradicate all this kind of um, this disease. Um, and but then at the same time, they 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 can formulate all kinds of new drugs for this new syndrome, which is polio-like, mm-hmm. but no, 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 this isn't actually polio. So it's 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 pretty sinister, really. Yeah, polio has kind of become the poster child for the success of vaccines everywhere. Like if people yeah. can resist, oh, we totally eradicated polio or we totally eradicated smallpox, then they think mm-hmm. that all vaccines are safe and effective, which in reality, none of them are. Mm-hmm. Well, another interesting element, too, is when we did the virus mania talk with Dr. Kernline, the idea of pesticide toxicity being related mm-hmm. to polio. And, mm-hmm. and um, you know, India is an excellent example of where the Green Revolution, you know, this whole pesticide industrial agriculture model was implemented. And I wouldn't be surprised if that might play a role in it, too, as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminds me how it, uh, it is often said that the person has a very weird disease, like especially neurological, and you cannot find a single cause and you cannot get well with diet, you know, even supplementation, mm-hmm. you know, alternative methods. You really, really, really must think on heavy metal toxicity, you know, and there, yeah. that it's like a very bottom subject, you know. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Well, um, let's see here. Uh, Gabby, I'm sorry. I think that I had uh, skipped the yeah. article that you had uh, for this. Uh, our old friend, turmeric. Looks like there's some news about that, despite yeah. being better than drugs. I, did, I read an article recently. I thought it was very interesting. 
was posted a few years back by Dr. Mercola, and uh, he talks about curcumin, turmeric, you know, for rheumatoid arthritis, and not necessarily like a preventive measure, but a therapeutic me uh, measure. And he mentions a study um, where they compared a group of people with rheumatoid arthritis using standard anti-inflammatory drugs like Voltaren, you know, really harsh drugs, but you know, effective in dealing with inflammation. And the other group used a highly bioavailable bio form of curcumin. And the curcumin group did better. So I was interested in the doses and, you know, and the type of curcumin and all that, you know, because it really worked so well. It actually, you know, they were talking that it influenced like more than 700 genes positively. And, uh, and yet all the inflammation pathways were like, you know, blocked. So apparently um, he says that a relatively high dose is needed to achieve these therapeutic effects and curcumin generally is not absorbed very well. And the doses were up to three grams of bioavailable curcumin extract three mm. to four times daily, which is very difficult to achieve, you know, using standard curcumin powders. So he was talking about a few recipes to increase the viability. So he talked about doing a micro emulsion by combi combining a tablespoon of curcumin powder with one or two egg yolks and a teaspoon or two of melted coconut oil and put that in a hand blender in high speed to emulsify the powder. I was thinking also that you could do like liposomal curcumin, you know, you would put it on an ultrasonic um, cleaner, you know, to make a, an emulsion, a liposomal version of curcumin. It's mm -hmm. pretty much the same recipe, but that's an idea. And he also says that another strategy is to put one tablespoon of curcumin powder in a quart of boiling water. And it must be boiling when you add the powder, as it will not work as well as you put in the room temperature water and heat the water and curcumin together. And he says that after boiling it for 10 minutes, you will have created a 12% solution and you can drink this once it has cooled down. So that's another trick, you know. And uh, I thought that was interesting to experiment with because a lot of folks, including me, have the curcumin powder. And yes, we're doing a recipe and stuff, but I think this is worth experimenting. It's so potent, you know. The anti-inflammatory drugs used is the kind of drug we use, uh, used in the emergency room to stop pain, like some kidney stones and stuff. So curcumin can do something similar. Oh, I think that's uh, definitely must-have on the emergency kit. Yeah. Cool. I, I wonder if, um, if juicing the turmeric root, Gabby, might be another way to get a high dose of the curcumin. You know, you get the, the root and you put it through a juicer. I think that's another, yeah, I, have, I will experiment with that as well. Like, that's a good idea. And just knowing that it's uh, more bioavailable, like in fat. So, yeah, coconut mm -hmm. oil mm -hmm. and and egg yolks, and if you use the ultrasonic cleaner or other than the blender, it's uh, mm -hmm. uh, very interesting. <laughs> yeah. I've also okay. read that it's more absorbable if you have it with black pepper. So mm -hmm. whatever you're eating or you're cooking with, add some black pepper to it. Mm, yeah, that sounds good too. I 
I've done the raw root in the past. Um, basically, put it in with hot water and coconut oil in a in a blender. Just like peel the root and then chop it up and put it in there and blend it at high speed for about three minutes. And uh, I always noticed that, like I've done that when I was sick, and I've noticed that uh, after I drink it, I get really flushed and then really mm-hmm. tired. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah. I, I never like, really. Like, I wonder if maybe that's the that system. Machine. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like it was just kind of like my system going, whoa, hey, you know, now we have some stuff to work with, so go to sleep for a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've done the, the fresh juice with apple cider vinegar, and I think I've mentioned this on a, a show before. When you have a sore throat or even sinus issues, um, you use a tincture and you can put it in your mouth and kind of hold it in your throat and then swallow it, and it's supposed to help drain pressure in the sinuses and the ears. Mm-hmm. 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 Will that be diluted in water and filtered the water? Or? Um, no, just straight the turmeric juice and um, some apple cider vinegar. So it's a it's a strong solution for sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of a picture. Don't yeah, put it, it on your clothes. <laughs> but it's or not safer, you know, because people have had amoeba problems when they do the, you know, with non filtered water version, you know, of washing your irrigating your sinuses. I have heard mm-hmm. really like stories of people getting brain amoebas from the water. All the mm-hmm. uh, oh, yikes. Yeah. Doing an alcohol I've also tincture put it, would be really good. Um, if you like, yeah. if you slice it up and, and put it into um, some kind of alcohol solution, like the more pure alcohol, the better. Like vodka is pretty often used. Um, you let that sit on the counter for, I don't know, about a, a week or so, and it kind of draws out all the medicinal components, and then you've got a very strong... Uh, tincture that you can use, or you can just buy a turmeric t- tincture too from like a health food store. But those things can be very, very helpful as well. I've also seen it um, used in massage oils. Again, the the caution that it will dye whatever clothes you're wearing, but um, uh, mixed in a massage oil, either the liquid form or the powder form, and then rub it on your body for sore muscles or sprains. Mm. So if anybody's worried about their tan, their summer tan declining, you can just rub yourself down with turmeric. <laughs> exactly. You know, this, this is a long-lost Halloween remedy, so you can come out looking like a pumpkin. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because I know a guy who um, actually does uh, baths in turmeric. They'll put turmeric into the into the bath and actually just soak in it for a while. And um, apparently he got into quite uh, an argument with his landlord because he totally stained his bathtub yellow, and his landlord was not just happy about that. Oh, my God. Yeah, we got to be careful. Well, let's, uh, let's move on to our articles here for Connecting the Dots. Uh, Erica, do you want to talk a little bit about the decline of play? This looks like an interesting piece. Yeah, so um, the name of the article is The Decline of Play in Preschools and the Rise in Sensory Issues, and this came out the 1st of September in the Washington Post. And basically, um, it's an occupational therapist. She's a number of 
pop, many popular posts on a blog. Um, some have heard titles of her articles are Why So Many Kids Can't Sit Still in School Today and the Right and Supposedly Wrong Ways to Get Kids to Sit School in Class. And then one, another one, How Schools Have Ruined Recess. She's founder of uh, an organization called Timber Nook, and it's a nature-based developmental program designed to foster creativity and independent play outdoors in New England. And then um, there's a little discussion about a mom who's, you know, kind of suffering with her child who's having challenges in kindergarten. And really the premise of the article is that – Preschoolers are not, our preschool years are for optimum play, and what's happening is there's such this high focus on, you know, teaching kids reading, writing, arithmetic, how to maintain themselves in a classroom and environment. And as a result, um, there's all kinds of problem solving issues and difficulties with social interactions that children are experiencing. So she says, we're constantly seeing sensory, motor, and cognitive issues that pop up more and more in later childhood, partly because of inadequate opportunities to play and move at an early age. And um, they said, when children reach elementary school, you know, we have to practice special breathing techniques, coping skills, run social skill groups, and utilize special exercises in an attempt to teach children how to be still and improve focus. However, these skills shouldn't have to be taught because something that was developed at a young age in in the most natural sense through meaningful play experiences is something that children aren't getting. Um, If children are given ample opportunities to play outdoors every day with peers, there would be no need for these specialized uh, exercises or meditation techniques for the youngest in our society. These things would naturally develop through play, right? And we really see this in the American education system in the last 20 years, that this idea of playing is a waste of time. You know, the environment is so controlled. Children can't be outside, you know, because there's all these concerns about, you know, what what if they get dirty and, you know, um, this whole idea, and we covered this in a previous show, of, you know, germs are bad and kids need to have kind of this sanitized environment. Um, the author says that let the adult-directed learning experiences, which kids are now experiencing in preschool, happen later. Uh, Preschool children basically need to play. And, um, you know, we see this again and again with children not even knowing how to be outside and kind of create their own environment to interact with each other, you know, this idea of social isolation and to use the environment around them to stimulate learning, you know, uh, putting kids outside and just say, figure it out, you know, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but when we were kids, it was like after breakfast, go outside, and you don't come back inside until it's dinner time, and mm-hmm. you yeah. didn't have all these toys and things. You know, it was like you 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 interacted with your natural environment. And kind of on an added note to that, there was recently an article on signs under the health and wellness section about how farm kids, kids growing up on farms, and particularly dairy farms, had stronger immune systems because, 
you know, this whole idea of the hygiene hypothesis, they get dirty. They're barefoot in the mud and, you know, they get to develop these um, stronger immune systems uh, in particular to things like asthma because they're in their uh, natural environment and their body is building their immune system via their gut microbes. So it's, you know, just, again, another sign of times about how we are isolating our kids so much that they're now not being able to cope when they get into school in later years. And I really think there needs to be, you know, this whole shift. I don't think it will happen in our lifetime, but where, you know, schools, in particular preschools, focus more on just letting kids be and Mm. figuring out how to interact with each other and their environment without this constant regimented, you know, moment-by-moment control of the situation. And and as we talked about in our addiction um, radio show, you know, the whole technological influence as well. So, you know, kids playing farm games on the computer (laughs) instead of being outside actually interacting. So... Yeah, it was, it's, it's yeah, I was, disconcerting for sure. I was, you know, I'm horrified. Even for drawing, you know, children get like tablets and stuff instead of doing it on paper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a normal mm-hmm. color pencil. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Now, there's kind of an overprotective aspect to it all, too. I know um, a, a couple of people who have kids right now, and what they tell me about what is expected and what's what's normal for um, how you kind of ch- uh, treat your children these days is pretty unbelievable. Like, they, they, they you mm. know, I, I, I always walked to school when I was a kid. Always, I could, I would ask my parents for a ride, and they would laugh at me. And it's like, no, you get, get out there, start walking, <laughs> you know. But these days, like kids, like it's expected that the kids are accompanied to school. Um, you know, even until they're like, you know, fifteen, sixteen years old, that they, you know, you, mm. that you can't trust the world enough to kind of leave a kid alone on his way to school or her way to school. It's like there's this fear that like there's a boogeyman around every corner who's going to jump out and like grab your kid and do, you know, absolutely horrible things to them and stuff. And it's not to say that those kinds of things don't happen, but, but I think that, uh, you know, there's this overprotective aspect where, you know, you can't trust your child outdoors at all. You know, I, it, like you were saying, Erica, I mean, when I was a kid in the summertime, I'd wake up, I'd eat breakfast, I'd go outside, I wouldn't be home until dinner. You know, that's that's what we mm-hmm. did. I was out in the forest, I was out in like, you know, cornfields, bike riding through trails and stuff like that. And kids just, they can't do that these days. They have to be watched, they have to be, uh, you know, I don't want to say controlled necessarily, but, uh, um, you know, they, they you can't trust the world enough to allow your child to interact with it. You need to be, uh, you know, they're watching every second of the day, you know, and you, know, you get these play dates and stuff like that where the kids can't just like hook up with another kid and play. They have to like, there, there has to be a, a date set where so-and-so is going to go over to so-and-so's house and they're going to do this activity. And it's like, you know, just let the kids be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's helicopter yeah. parenting and it's constant. Mm-hmm. Like you were saying, Doug, like this, the parent has to constantly watch. And, you know, I even went through this with my own children, like feeling like you need to intervene when there's a problem between kids. And kind of the gist mm-hmm. I got from this article was that 
those kinds of things happen without parents around. They learn how to cope in situations. They learn how to deal with the issues that arise, whether it's, you know, not sharing or um, arguments, and then they work it out. And it seems like now Mm -hmm. a parent or a teacher always has to intervene and we have to have, you know, timeouts and things Mm -hmm. like this. And it's like a major regulation of all aspects of their life. And so it's not surprising Mm -hmm. when they get to elementary school that they don't have those coping skills and you get the kid that's always tattling, you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, and, uh, um, the safety hysteria thing is kind of interesting to me, too, because, Doug, I can echo what you said about playing when I was a kid. I mean, part of fun was putting yourself in imminent physical danger. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, and and that, you know, that was from like, that, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, now I know you're not supposed to jump out of a tree at 20 feet. Because it hurts when you land. <laughs> Valuable well, lesson. that's what we did. We'd go to yeah. swings and swing up as high as we could and then jump off or jump off garages, climb trees. There was always yeah. gangs of free-roaming kids, like, running yeah. around the neighborhood when I was growing up. And there wasn't an adult breathing down their necks. I mean, their parents would tell them, get out of here, go outside, get some under my yeah. feet, go outside <laughs> and play. You're getting on my nerves. <laughs> But, yeah, um, and there was also this hysteria around, like, people are getting arrested for having their children sent to uh, protective services because they let them walk to school on their own or go to the park by themselves. It's ridiculous. Or this whole helmet law. I don't know if where you guys live this. Every kid has to have a helmet on, which, you know, I understand the safety aspects of it, but at the same time it's like, Again, that fear, like you got to put your helmet on, even if you're riding a tricycle, you know, on the front lawn. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I never wore a helmet when I was on my bike, like ever. And like the stuff we were doing on, yeah, the stuff we were doing on our bikes was like so dangerous. Like we would build these jumps and ramps and things like that, and be getting crazy, like crazy air on uh, on our bikes like riding through the forest at insane speeds and like never once did we ever even like think about the idea of wearing a helmet like helmets were for losers (laughs) (laughs) and now you you know in some towns you can get a ticket if your kid's riding a bike without a helmet on (laughs) that's insane (laughs) way to collect money you know (laughs) yeah yeah Safety first. Yeah. <laughs> That's like the overall that kids are sent away to school way too early. Mm. I'm against school just in all situations. Sending <laughs> yeah. a kid off to preschool like three years old is just too much. They they are not meant to sit down and learn. They're little balls of energy. They need to be running around mm-hmm. and playing. Because that's how they learn, and they're not going to grasp higher concepts until they learn how to move their bodies and interact with people or interact with their peers in a social way and get hurt and start crying Mm -hmm. and skin their knees and all that stuff. And then Mm -hmm. after they do all that, maybe they'll be able to sit around for a little while and learn their ABCs. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Maybe. Well, I worked in a preschool, and the whole idea, and this is even a Montessori school, so it's a little bit more alternative approach to education, 
But at the end of the day, it was like we got to normalize these kids to be all on the same page. Mm-hmm. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, that's such a disturbing thought. What is normal? Yeah. I mean, what does normal mean? That a that a four-year-old can sit for five hours, you know, without fidgeting and jumping around and, you know, pulling their hair and staring out the window. and <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's almost yeah, as if to, uh, uh, people want to make little adults. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well-behaved yeah. adults. And, you know, avoid the uh, the lawsuits. I'm sure that's part of it. Yeah. I mean, sure. it's, you know, everything has become so litigious, you could sue the school for your kid getting a cut on the playground. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and don't get me started on playgrounds these days. Like they they yeah. don't resemble the playgrounds of my youth at all. Everything is like plastic and padded, and you know nobody. There's no possible way that you could injure yourself on this thing, even if you like ran into it at full speed. It just they're just they're, yeah. they're safety zones. They're not playgrounds, and they don't look the least bit fun. Yeah, I yeah. haven't seen a tire swing or God forbid a merry-go-round, and I don't know mm-hmm. how long. Like we get that merry-go-round going, and you have to hold yeah. on to your life. If you're going at warp speed, if you didn't hold on, you fall off. <laughs> or get dragged around. Yeah. yeah. And you're yeah. learning valuable lessons about physics by doing that. Exactly. Some states just don't even have swing sets. They've just completely outlawed swing sets uh, at all playgrounds. So I know what you mean. Uh, it's, it's frightening, you know, and, and – you know, I I always joke like these are going to be the people that are going to be taking care of us all when we're senior citizens. <laughs> like, yes. We are screwed. <laughs> Get ready for your padded room and your helmet. Yeah, and what's your full body armor. <laughs> what's interesting to me is that all these things have uh, taken place, you know, and there's this safety hysteria. Um, over kids, and yet all of kind of us in the the generation, uh, although I suppose not all of us hosts here are the same generation, but you know within within one generation of each other, um, that uh, that we're the ones remembering when you know play was dangerous or at least a little bit risky, you know, and that there wasn't this crazy hysteria over getting slightly injured or you know getting a raspberry on the on the gravel road and that kind of stuff that like where where did all these restrictions come from you know like is it just from lawyers or you know is it just that like the few really anal people kind of took over society how did this happen that 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 it's so um you know overblown now um that's something that i wonder about like because almost everybody that you talk to who's older than say you know 30 35 remembers you know having kind of dangerous play uh when they were kids um, so I'm just curious about how that kind of came about. Yeah, actually, we've got a call on the line here. We've got um, we've got a caller named Al who had a comment for us. So uh, go ahead, Al. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for taking my phone call. Yeah, no problem. Um, I had to laugh when you were talking about the playgrounds. 
Well, I, I, I'm, I'm giggling because I remember, you know, as a kid playing on the playgrounds and everything was metal, you know, with the uh, the mm-hmm. nuts and the poles <laughs> sticking all over the place. And now Shit. everything is foam and they've got rubber, uh, what is it, rubber rocks or rubber, you know, all over the ground now. <laughs> you know, and I, I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. You know, we fell and jumped and played all over all, everything out there and never got hurt. And even if you did, you know, you kind of you know, rubbed it, you know, if, even if it got cut, you know what I mean? You ran home, your mom, mm-hmm. you know, stuck a Band-Aid on it, and, you know, you went mm-hmm. and played, you know, five minutes later, and now you got to worry about everybody suing everybody, and, you know, it's yeah. like, oh, my God, what is going on today? <laughs> yeah, it's basically raising a generation of fearful children, children who are going to be mm-hmm. afraid to do anything a little bit physical or a little bit rough and tumble, you know, that might actually hurt them. It is. It's crazy. I mean, it's crazy. And the thing is with the helmets, you know, I I, I know exactly where you're coming with that. You know, it's it's like you're afraid to do anything anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's insane. Al, how do you how do you think that this how do you think this came about, Al? What's your opinion on that? The safety hysteria. You know, that's a good question because I mean. I don't know, you know, even when, with my kids, you know, I, I'm I'm 50, you know, I mean, but, you know, when, when we were allowed to play, you know what I mean? And then I think, I don't know if it's just, I don't know if you said, where did it come from? Mm-hmm. I, I, I can't even tell you, you know, I think it's just, you know, one generation and then the next, and I, I don't know if it's just social media, I don't know if it's just, you know... I, I, I don't know. I have I have no idea. But you know what I mean? It's just, it's insane. That's all I got to say about it. It is insane, yeah. you know. <laughs> I think part of it is How have fear. you seen this? Oh, I was going to ask, have you seen this happen just in your kids' generation? I know you said you have kids and you're 50. Have you seen it change in your kids' generation, like since your kids were young and now as they grow older? Oh, of course. Of course, you know, even, even myself, you know, I, and I'll tell you even myself, not, not about playgrounds, but even myself, even with my sons and their friends in the car, you know, used to be, you know, when we were young, you know, I remember my mom having like, you know, 15, 20 kids in the Volkswagen, you know what I mean? We'd all climb in the car and, you know, today, Nobody you in don't seat yeah, no, you know, but today you don't do that because, you know, if little Johnny, Jimmy, whatever gets hurt in the car, you got to worry about their mom or dad suing you now. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? So times have really changed. You got every, you know, attorney advertising on TV, you know, hey, did you get hurt here? Did you get hurt here? Call yeah. me, you know, free, yeah. easy money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, oh my God, you're afraid to go out and check your mailbox because if you close the mailbox lid on your finger, you can go sue the mailbox company. It's crazy. Your question, Jonathan, I think it's a few different factors playing into it. Uh, one is playing outside with a stick and climbing a tree is completely free. Um, it's not like we didn't have toys and Barbies and all that stuff when we were growing up. But I think the rise in consumerism and the shift towards like um, video games and tablets and mm-hmm. videos and DVDs all move that mm-hmm. kind of outdoor stuff indoors. And then once society starts crumbling, 
the really crazy people make it into positions of power, not that they weren't there in the first place, but mm. then you have the authoritarian followers and everybody just becomes hysterical and just super crazy and impose all these draconian and weird freedom-sapping laws on people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that's just my theory. <laughs> Do you yeah, remember I think being... Oh, I didn't mean to interrupt. Do you remember no, being young and, and getting getting at Christmas these creepy crawlers? I think that's where they were called. And you would mold your own, um, you know, like, uh, I, I don't remember what, you know, like spiders and things like that. And you would mm-hmm. actually have the, this rubber. You know, the guys would probably remember this. And, and mm-hmm. you would mold your own creepy crawlers. And you know mm-hmm. what I mean? You would touch these things and you get third degree burns. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and today you would never get away with that stuff. You know what I mean? You got to have safeties on safeties on safeties of these things today. Yeah. yeah. And you, you always get the kid that eats it too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Dare. And the and the science kits that you used to have. I mean, today, you know what I mean? You couldn't have that. You know what I mean? You yeah. the 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 science the uh, uh, what do you call it the, uh, the the bottles that used to come in that stuff you know what I mean you you could kill half the you know half the people in your town with that the stuff they used to give you. <laughs> sure. you need science. Yeah. I used to mix volatile chemicals in my bath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All in good fun. It's- yeah, yes. and nobody, but you know what, nobody thought about that. I mean, you know, when you used to get a science kit, you know, the worst you did was, you know, make the house smell or, you know what I mean, give mm-hmm. off some gas or something like that. But you never thought about those things, you know what I mean? Nobody yeah. thought about hurting. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm sure there was that rare occasion or something, but I mean, who mm-hmm. who 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 thought about hurting anybody back then? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Today, it's rampant. Yeah. It's interesting that it seems uh, to me that there's actually a little bit of hypocrisy going on uh, about that because now there is all this concern about um, safety and, you know, toys having rounded corners and all that kind of stuff. And yet uh, that doesn't translate into, like, the uh, environmental toxins or the diet. You know, parents will uh, be, like, kind of hovering over their children and then feed them, you know, Fruit Loops with sugar on top and yeah. the, the idea that the idea that they're concerned about their safety, but then are giving them this really potent drug, essentially, you know, um, it just seems kind of like disparity. Yeah, we're letting them play violent video games and all this other yeah. social media craziness. Sure. Yeah. Well, as long as they're not actually, you know, hurting people, you can do it in a game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're just hurting their brain. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'll right, well, thank you a lot for your call. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that's yeah, awesome. and as we've we covered really in previous shows, you know, this whole idea of kids not sitting still and then we just drug them, right? Mm-hmm. Let's give them mm-hmm. some Ritalin or some Adderall and, you know, legal speed, basically. I'm saying mm-hmm. just give them a cup of coffee, maybe. Just drugs and let them move on the internet, you know, where they can, like, you know, get brainwashed with mindless games. And, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the media plays a big role in the whole spreading of this fear, too. 
You know, now if an incident happens, it's on the nightly news across the entire country, and everybody's getting implanted with this idea that this is something that's possible. You know, so where while it might be something that is relatively rare or unlikely, um, suddenly everybody has that fear kind of drilled into them, and it's like, oh my God, I got to protect my kid from this. Um, you know, the sensationalist news just had, you know, they sell headlines this way. So people read this and they're constantly bombarded with these ideas of how unsafe the world is. So suddenly they're like, yeah, you know what? Every time my kid goes outside, they got to wear a helmet. You know, they got to wear snow pants until June. It's just, it's ridiculous. Wrap <laughs> them in some saran wrap and send them out there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, well, let's uh, let's move on a little bit here. Um, Doug, you got the next one. Do you want to talk a little bit about the posture-mood connection? It looks interesting. Yeah, yeah. This was uh, an article we posted on SOT. Um, it's from uh, care2.com, uh, published on August 31st. And it's talking about, it's called uh, Why You Should Stop Slouching, the Posture-Mood Connection. Um, so they start off by saying, want to, want to feel more confident and energetic? Stand up straight and strut your stuff because there's a connection between posture and mood. And they interviewed a couple of different uh, specialists in this uh, article. One of them was named Vivian Eisenstadt, who's an orthopedic and sports physical therapist, a postural specialist, and a spiritual psychologist, which I thought was a really interesting combination of things. Um, and she believes our physical, <laughs> mental, and emotional states interact uh, and affect each other on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. Uh, she says that poor posture carries with it uh, uh, an energy with it. Uh, depression, fatigue, and insecurity are just some of the feelings that are associated with shoulders forward and forward head posture. Uh, standing straight exudes a sense of pride, confidence, and promotes happiness. By standing straight, you actually feel better. Try it right now. I bet you'll feel sexier. That was uh, a... <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's interesting, though, because I've, I've actually noticed this kind of thing myself. You know, you can see, it's even like you can visually see it in other people. Like just by seeing somebody, when they've got that kind of stooped posture with their shoulders forward, um, they don't look like a happy person. They don't look confident. They look like they're kind of very inwardly turned. Um, and it, it's interesting that it kind of mm -hmm. goes both ways, you know, like by adopting that posture, you can actually end up taking on that mood. And by standing up straighter and stuff, it actually does affect your mood. Whereas uh, from the other direction, when you are in that mood, you will be more likely to take on those postures. So it kind of it kind of goes both ways. And you can kind of um, address these things from both both sides. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, so there, they interview, also interviewed a guy named Dr. Steve Weiner, um, and he has a website called Body Zone, and he gives a couple of uh, interesting tips. He says you can uh, drive taller by adjusting the rearview mirror in your car so that you have to sit tall to be able to see it. Um, he says walk taller by imagining a string lifting your chest uh, and the top of your head towards the sky. And I've done that exercise myself um, when I kind of remember to, and it's 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 really good for kind of adjusting your posture you kind of uh, imagine that like that string kind of pulling on the top of your head to bring everything kind of upward um he says you can change the angle of your computer monitor um by putting like a book under it or something underneath uh the monitor or underneath the, the laptop to kind of prop that up so that you're more straight you don't end up like kind of hunched over it um and he said you can sit on uh, you know one of those big exercise balls 
is that for part of the day you can kind of sit on one of those exercise balls at your computer or um, or at the TV or wherever you happen to be um, because it encourages pelvic support. Um, he says you can move your car seat back for long trips so that your legs are more extended. Um, says you can take a break every once in a while to do posture exercises. Um, a one-minute break every 30 minutes is what he recommends. And he says that uh, a good idea is to take a picture of yourself right now without uh, – probably better to take, like, a candid photo. Um, and, uh, you know, and then st- – you know, so you can see where you're at right now and then start trying all these steps and take a picture of yourself uh, in two or three months and see if uh, if there's a difference. He says that there will be. Um, another uh, doctor of chiropractic that was uh, um, interviewed for this article was uh, Dennis Ennix. I mean, he's from Logan University in uh, St. Louis. And uh, he said that one of the biggest posture, posture uh, sins is uh, text neck. And we've talked about this in a past show, um, the whole idea that you're hunched over your phone and your your head is drawn forward. Um, he points out that uh, the head weighs 10 to 20 pounds. However, the force of the head tilted down at a 60-degree angle puts 60 pounds of weight on the neck and shoulders. So I think that, uh, you know, massage therapists and, and other body workers are seeing kind of an epidemic of this text neck where people are having these Sure, uh, sore neck, sore shoulders from being hunched over the phone like this. Uh, you can see it says it leads to uh, herniated discs in the cervical spine. Um, so they get the, the article is uh, really interesting, and I recommend reading it. They actually give a couple of more um, pointers on the right way to sit, the right way to stand, um, and like you know methods for kind of improving your your posture. Um, and by doing that, you're you're kind of automatically improving your mood as well. So a very interesting article. That's cool. There, um, there's a, a I can recommend a, a really good book on posture that's called Eight Steps to a Pain-Free Back. Mm. And uh, it sounds like it sounds like just kind of a you know like a whatever physical self-help book that you might find in the store, but it's it's quite good. Um, there's a lot of really detailed explanation of different types of posture, different ways of sleeping. Um, different exercises that you can do, just micro adjustments to uh, to correct a lot of uh, back and neck pain. So, mm. if you feel like looking that up, it's on Amazon. Great, cool. Um, well, let's see here. I got one more for connecting the dots, and then we'll get into our topic for the for today. Is um, <clears throat> an article that was on site called "Shaking the Foundation of Medical Research: Half of Failed Peer-Reviewed Papers Are Spun as Success." Um, and so this is kind of for the statisticians in the crowd. Um, mm. uh, Dr. Malcolm Kendrick reports on a new study that says could shake the foundations of medical research, but uh, laments that it probably won't. He says it almost certainly won't. Um, mm. in, the, uh, in the year 2000, the U.S. National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute <laughs> insisted that all research, researchers register their primary aim and then later their primary outcome with uh, the website clinicaltrials.gov. Um, so they basically, you know, kind of what seems like a no-brainer, they had to say at the beginning, uh, this is what we're intending to do with this study, and then at the end they say this is what happened. Uh, what they found was that before this uh, standard was instituted, uh, the 57% of studies found uh, the success that they said they were testing for after this was instituted, the rate fell to 8%, from huh. 57% wow. to, to 8%. <laughs> so, 
And uh, what they found was that when people didn't have to declare what their aim was at the beginning, uh, they could fish through the results to find some positive uh, tangential association and report that as if they had been investigating that all along. So it's like, huh. oh, yeah, no, we were looking for this, actually. <laughs> um, so it's just kind of an interesting little article. Um, I think it's something that uh, we kind of understand and that our, our audience probably understands from a lot of the, the research and the stuff that we've talked about on this show that the medical establishment will you know, prop up data and alter data or selectively kind of pick data to suit their needs um, uh, as to what they're, um, what they're looking to do. Um, but mm-hmm. I just thought there's an interesting, really small point that if you uh, force people at the beginning of a study to say what they're looking for, then that's kind of written down and they can't change that uh, at the end. So at the end they have to say what happened and then you see if it matches up with what they were looking for. And the, uh, the success rate for these studies goes way, way down to 8%, which is pretty incredible. Um, I mean, that, mm-hmm. that to me, I think, would warrant a, an entire uh, rewriting of the uh, the methods of, of how these papers are written. Yeah. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't follow the principles of science, you know? It's like the, the, right. the idea of science is that you're investigating something just to see what happens, what it is, why, like, you know, to investigate, to find out. You, you shouldn't go in there with a preconceived goal, you know? Like, I want to show that the vegan diet is the superior diet for humanity. Um, and you, 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 you know, you, you alter your diet, or sorry, alter the, the study so that it'll give you the results that you want to see. Like, that's really, you know completely contradictory to what science is supposed to be about. You know, the, the goal of any scientific study would, should be to find out, you know, to see what, what actually is going on. There shouldn't be a, a, a goal, you know, maybe, maybe something like to, to investigate such and such and, and that, you know, that should be your goal to find out whether X or Y is true. But, um, but really, like, I, I don't know, I, I, I see a big problem with that. You're not the only one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, and you, you see this all the time too. in studies, too. Yeah. Sorry. Well, I think there's Go a, ahead, John. Well, I think there's a merit to, to having a, a hypothesis, uh, you know, mm. that, you, that you're testing. But um, I see what you're saying, yeah. too, you know, like setting out to to kind of prove a predetermined goal. You know, you have to also be willing to be disproven. Yes, Exactly. Yeah, but people become very attached to their hypotheses and they don't want to see them actually, you know, it's considered a failure if you didn't prove your hypo- hypothesis correct. And you see it all the time. I see it in diet studies all the time. You know, they do they do some kind of uh, study and, you know, what they report in the abstract because they know that in most vast majority of cases, the only people, uh, sorry, the, not very many people are going to be reading the uh, the full study. They're going to kind of just look at the abstract um, you know, give me the gist of this. What 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 happened? Um, which is kind of understandable. You know, nobody, especially doctors and things, they don't have a lot of time to be reading entire studies and looking at methodologies and things like that. But the abstract allows for a, like a spin zone. You know what I mean? A place where you can kind of spin your results to what you want um, to be said. And there's so many um, examples of where you read the abstract. And if you actually get in and start digging into the study and you look at the methodology, you're finding so many errors and so many um, assumptions. And, uh, you know, you find that in a lot of these cases, the abstract says the exact opposite of what was actually found. 
because whether or not maybe the results weren't totally PC or they went against what the uh, the researchers were actually trying to prove, or you know the the funding for the study came from from somebody who had an agenda. Um, it, it's it, you know it, it's gotten to the point where you can't actually trust the studies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much it. This is where all the corruption has been, you know, been in the way. Mm-hmm. Through all this statistic nightmare, you can pretty much prove or get away with anything. It sounds pretty horrible, but I've seen it firsthand myself, you know. When I was very young um, in Italy, I got involved in a multi center study, and the sponsor uh, where research was the corporate. A corporation from California who was interested in a particular technology, uh, a particular technology to to be used in bypass uh, surgery, mm-hmm. and the corruption I witnessed, you know, was like I was just like jaw dropped. You know, at huh. some point, you know, I was part of a coordinator, you know, a coordinator of the study, you know, following her sample results and you know, you know, gathering all the data. And just to witness how other centers, you know, published their results from what I saw firsthand, and then just sitting with you, these studies have to be overviewed by a third party just to make sure there's no corruption. And I sat with her sharing all the data I collected, and she just shared stories with me like you know, we we pretty much you know warmed up to an, an informal conversation. And she was telling me that she was going to quit the job and she was going to go to the Dominican Republic and be a teacher. Like she was so horrified by the whole thing. Wow. I was like, shortly after that, I just, you know, I was losing the specialty altogether, you know. I was like, yeah. My first lab chatty, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's almost like when they, you know, doing a study is the, uh, you know, one step in kind of. Um, propagating the lie, right? It's like, well, we need the public to think this. Uh, let's let's design a couple of studies, and, and we'll get a couple of headlines in the paper, and then then that'll show what we want. It's it's to pretty disgusting. Fair, you know, to, to be fair, just to mention, and there's the other side of the coin. There's also very good research, but mm-hmm. yes, you really have to to apply scientific principles and you know, use your intelligence, and you know. And uh, when you read other studies, and you know, and, and or when you do studies, you know, be aware against cognitive biases. You are not so smart. Mhm. 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 Which is kind of like we talked about on our uh, episode about alternative medicine. You know that there, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of really, really good, really effective actually effective cures in quote-unquote alternative medicine for different uh, conditions and diseases Um, and yet at the same time um, that should not you know uh, I think cause people to say well I'm never going to the hospital for anything Um, Mm -hmm. because there are there are cases in which modern technology is really beneficial and there you know doctors there are doctors who actually know what they're talking about and are experts in certain areas and so it's really um People need to, I think, uh, steer clear of like straight up black and white thinking, and take each mm-hmm. uh, each situation in its own context, and try not to develop cognitive bias in, in one way or the other, um, and mm-hmm. just say, well, is this valid? You know, is that valid? 
they just kind of approach each thing on its own. Mm-hmm. So that that kind of brings us into our topic for the day. We're talking about weird remedies uh, and folk medicine, and um, I think that uh, you know a lot of the stuff that we talk about normally on the show could be considered kind of weird, um, you know, for, for for a lot of people. Just, you know, like liposomal vitamin C. What is that? You know. Um, but you know, there there are some things that. Uh, you know, I, personally, I think that uh, fortunately are not done uh, very much anymore, like bleeding. You know, I mean, like, you know, or I should I should clarify that because I guess there are some cases in which bleeding is actually effective, but not bleeding with you mm-hmm. know a rusty knife in the barn. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, so there is a line uh, between some of these things that are kind of crazy and some of the things that seem crazy but aren't. And so we are going to kind of dance all over that line uh, today mm-hmm. and talk about some of these things. So um, I guess my first question to start off our discussion is, like, uh, what do you guys see as some of the top, like, really, the, like, what's the really crazy stuff that that, hap- that used to happen that we don't do anymore? And, like, what should we be grateful that we're not doing anymore? <laughs> I would say that for me, I like coffee. <laughs> um, trepanation. Trepanation, where they make yeah. a, a fur right to the skull, and it exposes the outer layer of the brain, and they use it um, to relieve pressure. So sometimes I think this is still used in, like, head trauma. Like if someone has, like, excessive swelling on the brain, they use a stent or something, they're going to have to release the pressure in some way. But yeah. throughout history, they've been using this to treat uh, evil spirits, to cure epilepsy, migraines, and mental disorders. And I guess, like, geologists or what do you call them? Archaeologists have found, like, old skulls all over the world with holes drilled into them. Mm. I was just wondering, like, did they get, like, hit with a rock or something? But I guess it's too many of them. <laughs> like, yeah. they had to doing at least some of those on purpose. Mm. Um, but the weird thing that I found on looking into this trepanation was that there's this group of people um, called the International Trepanation Advocacy Group. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> They're still in operation, and they want to make it easier for people to volunteer to be trepanated because they say it increases blood flow and it can restore youthfulness to the brain. So I didn't go, like, too deep into it because it was just so silly, but they were, like, doing these studies and seeing if, like, people who were, had holes burned into their skulls, like, if they... Um, had increase in brain function like a lot of times they didn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I wonder why. But uh, of course, I mean, we're just talking about studies and statistics, so you can make your study yeah. look like whatever you want it to look like. But um, I think that's probably the weirdest thing for me. Yeah. There's actually, like, there, there's some, you know, kind of, well, I guess somewhat legit science into this, actually. There's one researcher, he's a, a Russian neuri- neurophysiologist called uh, Yuri Moskalenko. And he's he is actually, um, you know, wanting uh, trepanation um, to be used as a therapy for uh, Alzheimer's. 
and mm-hmm. it looks like there's actually something to it. Um, the idea is that you know the, the the head is kind of a closed system, and you know blood goes into the brain, um, and then uh, cerebral spinal fluid uh, goes out to kind of make room for it. Um, and the problem is that in Alzheimer's you have like the proteins in the brain start to kind of harden, um, and they don't allow that system to work as well anymore. Um, mm-hmm. So by drilling a hole in the in the head, like that increases the pressure because the blood's going in and the cerebral spinal fluid doesn't come out. And yeah, he, they, they've done some studies, and it looks like uh, there's by by uh, drilling a hole in the head, you're actually relieving some of that pressure, and people uh, seem to kind of improve from their Alzheimer's mm-hmm. um, uh, symptoms, uh, at least to a certain degree. Um, mind you, I think you know from doing the, uh, the the research that we've done on diet, uh, ketogenic diet, and looking into you know all the recent research on Alzheimer's, where it, it's actually um, they sometimes call it type three diabetes because it has to do mm-hmm. with kind of um, the body's ability to process sugar. I think the the hardening of those proteins is probably um, from an excess of sugar. Um, the glycation yeah. of those proteins. We talked about that in past shows, where you know basically these proteins caramelize from being exposed to too much carbohydrate, um, and then that that causes a stiffening, and that's why you know this um, this this, uh, this system of the brain being able to to release the pressure isn't working so well anymore. So I think, you know, diet would be kind of the first first step before you start drilling holes in your head. I'll be very wary uh, against any mechanical means to release that pressure. It sounds like the typical mainstream solution, like stimulating your vagus nerve. I don't know, let's place a pacemaker while you can, you know, breathe, do breathing exercises. (laughs) Exactly. How hard to it's basically, and yeah, it's like mechanical solutions, drill a hole. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like a hack, basically, right? It's like somebody who's eaten a crappy diet all their life and is paying a price for it now. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, how, how can we solve this problem? Oh, I know, let's drill a hole in the head. Um, you know, it 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 just it, it, it's it's fundamentally not getting to the heart of the matter, not not finding the uh, the cause, like treating the cause. It's like it's like a short short sighted solution. It's kind of like giving um, giving a mastectomy uh, in, in case there might be breast cancer in the future kind of thing, mm-hmm. which we've talked about yeah. in the past, yeah. Well, that's where that saying comes from, because everybody knows that it's stupid, like, uh, I need another piece of cheesecake, like I need a hole in my head. You should change that up now. Instead of saying that, you'll say, I need that like I need to be trepanated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or I need another piece of cheesecake and I need a hole in my head. But <laughs> <laughs> I think just to, just to clarify, you know, we're not talking about situations in like there might be an emergency surgery where there's bleeding in the brain, you know, and, and yeah. in the operating room they have to drill a hole to relieve that pressure or something like that. This trep- trepanation mm-hmm. is definitely a... Different than that, I guess. What makes me curious about it, isn't that like an open wound, right? Wouldn't that be considered an open yeah. wound? That's pretty much. Slap some bacon on it. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, let's go to that one next, Erica. You were talking a little bit about some of the uh, some of the Amish remedies that that seem crazy, but might actually uh, have 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 been shown to uh, to work, like putting bacon on a wound. 
Yeah, um, and we talked about this in a previous show. Um, I found this really great little book. It's called uh, Home Remedies from the Amish Country, Powerful Time-Tested Remedies, and um, it's the revised fifth edition, and it's literally like a pamphlet size, but it's all these people that kind of wrote in and shared their little home remedies that worked, and one of them was if you have a sprained ankle to uh, put some cured bacon on it. And, and again, we talked about this in a previous show with sores. Um, another kind of useful remedy, um, Tiffy and I were looking through the book and we kind of tried to find something that was repeated time and again, um, was the use of raw garlic. Mm-hmm. And um, basically it says raw garlic uh, eases pain by stimulating the immune system, and it's a natural biotic. It takes care of parasites. Um, For something like arthritis, they suggest chopping two cloves of garlic and leave it to set for five minutes in warmed olive oil and fill the toe of a clean sock with the mixture and then rub the poultice over affected areas um, for several minutes. It also said if you have itching, you know, whether it's from a flea bite or a rash of some sort, to um, take six cloves of garlic, steep in hot water for 20 minutes, strain and add vitamin E, and then rub it into an effective area. Hmm. Um, They use uh, garlic oil for lots of earaches and ear infections, too. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. Um, but one that kind of really fits into this weird remedy um, for hemorrhoids, uh, somebody wrote in, it's probably Mrs. Jedediah Jehoshaphat, somebody wrote in and said, uh, <laughs> take a garlic clove and insert it into your several inches into your rectum and mm-hmm. then go to bed and then in the morning wake up, have a bowel movement and then put another garlic clove in there. <laughs> Apparently, it's it's a well tested remedy for relieving hemorrhoids, yeah. especially for pregnant women. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, garlic does have natural anti-inflammatory properties. Um, I yeah. guess I can see why that would be effective. It's it's funny. You, you kind of wonder though who the first person who came up with that was. <laughs> Like did he how? accidentally <laughs> sit on a clove of garlic and said, Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really feel better. <laughs> I'm curious about No, um, I've heard of, of garlic cloves for uh, yeast infections too. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, well they're uh, antimicrobial, it makes sense. And um plain yogurt, like Frozen and then made into suppository, like vaginal suppository for yeast infections too. That's actually worked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they've uh, yeah, they've got lots of supplements now that are probiotic uh, suppositories for yeast infections. So it's kind of just mm-hmm. a, you know, a more a more modern uh, version of the the old yogurt trick. Yeah. That interests me about some some of these that seem like they. They might sound kind of crazy, but they actually have elements of them that do work, like the one, you know, rubbing a raw potato on a wart and then burying the potato mm-hmm. in the ground. It, it's like, it, and a lot of people say that that, that that actually works. 
but I, I guess that mm-hmm. I would tend to think that, you know, there are some compounds in the potato that work against the wart mm-hmm. and that the burying yeah. it in the ground part is kind of a holdover from, like, you know, old mythology, like your archetypal yeah, kind of bury, that burying that. Yeah, bury it, not just bury it in the ground, but bury it where no one else can find it. And like, where did that part come from? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very special bacteria. I guess, like, there's maybe it has something to do with, um, uh, what's it called in, like, uh, in physics where one particle is uh, is tied to another particle and whatever you do to the one will happen to the other? Quantum entanglement. So, that's it. Entanglement. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So maybe maybe it has something to do with that, and as as the potato rots, it kind of rots the wart because the uh, the warts have been entangled with the potato. Well, that's very good, though. <laughs> you know, it is. Well, that's a good hypothesis. It's probably a bunch of BS. We should do a study. <laughs> we should take, let's take that hypothesis and do a study. <laughs> <laughs> My goal will be to prove that the potato is entangled with the warts. Well, they also have a little blurb in here about food poisoning and how garlic works. But I found this little remedy interesting um, for food poisoning. Swallow raw egg whites until you feel better. This has been good results. Hmm. (laughs) Swallow raw egg whites until you throw up, (laughs) and then you'll feel better. (laughs) Yeah. But you know that one actually makes sense because there's a lot of things in raw in uh, raw egg whites that are, are like binders, so it might mm-hmm. actually like kind of bind on to some of the toxic stuff that's giving you the food poisoning. Probably the same idea as using something like activated charcoal or uh, bentonite clay mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it had a lot of activated charcoal remedies in here too, and also mm-hmm. apple cider vinegar. A lot of recipes for apple cider vinegar. We could probably mm-hmm. do a whole show on that, but. Also for food poisoning, one teaspoon of apple cider vinegar and water uh, repeat to every two to three hours. So, mm. I think in that book they recommended that apple cider vinegar, like if you're going to go traveling somewhere and eat foreign food and drink foreign drinks, take some apple cider vinegar before you start eating and mm. maybe you won't get sick. Yeah, sure. Well, that one makes sense too because the apple cider vinegar is uh, acidic. So you're increasing yeah. the acidity of the stomach and more likely to denature some of those proteins that may be causing problems. Yeah, yeah when so many yeah. people with low acidity in their stomachs, they cannot digest food properly, they're vulnerable to infections, and plus they take drugs that inhibit the stomach acid, yeah. which is worse. So yeah, apple cider vinegar is a really good one. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. A little while back, I had done some research on uh, killing mold um, because, you know, we had some mold that showed up on the on the stone walls uh, of our basement. And uh, um, one of the points that I thought was really interesting was not to use bleach, even though you would kind of think that, well, bleach would kill mold. It actually doesn't. It just turns it white. Um, and huh. a lot of the recommendations, that, the recommendations that I found were to use um, vinegar, just to use white vinegar, basically and that that will kill it. So I, I guess so you could draw the parallels there, too, or if you're taking vinegar into your stomach either before or after eating a certain kind of food that would um, kill, you know, some of the harmful pathogens and, and uh, you know, prevent complications. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you think about it, I mean, the stomach acid is like one of our first defenses against 
bad bacteria and viruses and things like that. You know, our stomach acid is is the first offense because it acidifies it completely. So a lot of pathogens can't survive that acidity. So yeah, apple cider vinegar, absolutely. And don't do anything that will um, inhibit your stomach acid, like taking these like proton and uh, proton pump inhibitors and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I, um, <clears throat> I was just thinking about something, and I I wish I could remember this, or maybe you guys can help me remember that there was, and I think we had talked about this on the show in the past, that there was a cure for uh, like the flu uh, or for you know viral infections that involved like like haggis or or pig intestine or something like that, and it was really really nasty. It was like it was like rotted meat and garlic and some other things mixed mm. together. And it was from like the, from the 16th century. <laughs> Maybe it was in relation to Ebola. I don't know. I, I really wish I could remember that, but it was something that crossed my mind that we were, had been talking about for a little while. I'll see if well, I can I mean, find it, it here while we're. It, it, it actually kind of makes sense. You know, like rotted meat, what it essentially is, is meat that's allowed to have um, bacteria that digest meat properly to uh, to kind of grow and um, and proliferate on it. So by taking that in, you're taking in some bacteria that will help to digest these things. So I, I can see how maybe, you know, having those things um, introduced into your body could could be helpful in some way, although as disgusting as it sounds. Um, I've heard of people kind of in need of help with, uh, you know, when they're trans, uh, transitioning to the, uh, ketogenic diet, um, you know, taking in uh, some raw meat um, because that mm. raw meat will have the bacteria necessary for actually digesting uh, protein and fat, um, and that those will kind of colonize in your digestive tract and and uh, and help to to break down um, the the things that you're taking in in your diet. So yeah, I could I can see it makes sense. <laughs> Doug, you have a way of unweirdifying these weird enemies. <laughs> the debunkifier. See what you can do with this one, because this one is probably okay. my second most disgusting one. Um, urine therapy. Oh, I don't know. Okay, so according to the proponents of urine therapy, they say in most people, like if you're relatively healthy, if you're not taking like street drugs, you not uh, have heavy metal toxicity or something like that. In those cases, urine is not a dirty and toxic substance. Um, mm. Urine is a byproduct of blood filtration, not waste filtration. And medically, mm. it's referred to as plasma ultrafiltrate. So it's a purified derivative of the blood itself. It's made by the kidneys, of course. Um, it's excreted, and it can be compared to leftovers from a meal. Um, maybe things that your body didn't need at the time, and they kind of excreted it out through the urine. So this blood is clean, and it, uh, it's filtered by the kidneys, and it has excess water, salts, vitamins, minerals, enzymes, antibodies, urea, uric acid, um, so there have been products made with urea, like beauty products. Um, there's medications. I know that, uh, Permarin is made out of horse urine. 
Um, but they say it's kind of like a homeopathic remedy. Like if you do a clean catch on your urine first thing in the morning, they say the first thing in the morning, that's all the good stuff is in your pee there. Um, <laughs> if you do a clean catch, like your your genitals are clean, and you start peeing and then you put the cup clean cup midway through your stream and you collect that, and you have some of that to drink. It's kind of like a homeopathic remedy for yourself, specifically made by your body for you. So go with that, Doug. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I'm. I'm. I'm maybe. I mean, all the things you just said. I, I like they. They kind of make sense, I guess. But I. I yeah. I don't. I don't know. The the whole the pee and the poop thing really. <laughs> That's kind of where I draw my own personal line. Well, there's this old wives' tale that I that women would back when people used cloth diapers, they would take their diapers, these it peed in, and they would wipe it on their faces because it's oh. kind of an astringent, and it <laughs> and it helps the the complexion. Oh. Is it worth it? Uh, I guess I don't know. <laughs> how bad do you want a clear complexion? Like how bad do you want to do it? You gonna take your kid's really diaper bad. and wipe it all over your face? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. The thing about the urine therapy is that, like, you know, I quite a few. I, I've read quite a few, like, somewhat prolific individuals who have done this. Apparently, Gandhi used to do it. Um, and I can't remember any of the others off the top of my head, but there were some like in the Ayurveda, it's like a totally normal thing. That's, that's something that mm-hmm. you do. I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'd be hard pressed <laughs> to actually try it. Well, I confess I kind of dipped my toe into this whole urine thing, um, no. but it was just so weird. I could only do it just the once. <laughs> I put a little of my skin. Okay, I I confess to that. I I may have tasted it, but you know. <laughs> and and what kind of miraculous results did you notice? I miraculously noticed that I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I will Very say good. if it is. It, it has been used if you get stung by a vana in Hawaii. They call it a vana sea urchin, and you get a puncture wound mm-hmm. um, at the beach. The thing that a local person will tell you to do is pee on it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I've heard that too. Somebody else pee on it. Yeah. I mean, that one, I guess, makes sense because it neutralizes the poison. Um, yeah. But I don't know, something... Something the, the the whole like drinking your own urine thing. It seems like the benefits are kind of yeah. I I, I just don't know if they're strong enough for me to actually go there. <laughs> yeah, be like starving and have no water. Yeah, and be on the brink of death to actually yeah. you know reconsider this. Yeah. yeah. I heard a story about a woman who survived a tragic plane crash. She got lost in the jungle or many, many days, and she survived drinking or I don't know which scenario. Anyway, she survived <laughs> drinking her own urine. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, Seems like you'd quit making maybe it Maybe it, it goes on the, yeah, the survival, the survivalist checklist, yeah. if need be. 
When the shit hits the fan, <laughs> so to speak. be prepared to drink your own tea. <laughs> <laughs> well, oddly enough, I mean, there is actually um, a, a medical procedure now, that which, which is essentially eating poo. Um, it's called a fecal transplant. Mm-hmm. And uh, the idea is that somebody who has a really messed up uh, digestive tract with all kinds of um, overgrowth of, of pathogenic bacteria can take in uh, fecal matter from somebody who is actually has a healthy digestive tract and that that will kind of uh, rebalance the, uh, the messed up gi- digestive tract um, by introducing beneficial uh, flora. Now, I've heard of um, this being done with enemas. Um, so yeah. basically, you're taking a proof enema. Uh, but I've also heard that there's a method where people stick a tube down their throat and, you know, drink back a, drink back a fecal transplant from your buddy. Um, no. Just kind of, uh, you, you skip your tongue and it just kind of goes straight to the stomach. And that, when I heard about that, that just kind of blew my mind. I was just like, you got to be kidding. Ooh, but what if you like, burp afterwards? Oh, uh, and I'm sure you would. Oh. Oh. Um, I have heard of it, like in freeze-dried capsules or something. I still yeah. wouldn't want to go that route. No, I I could see doing the capsules. I could see maybe that would be you know I, I'd no. certainly be more more likely to do that than like a a poo shake. <laughs> yeah, no. I've got a strong constitution, but that one is particularly hard to think about. Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> there is definitely like a natural revulsion to yeah. bodily waste. You know that that would I think take a lot. To kind of get over, I think you'd have to be in a really dire situation to to consider these sorts of things. Or a dog. <laughs> <laughs> um, for some other some other weird ones here, I'm looking at uh, this list that's that's pretty interesting. It's called 14 Crazy Cures from Ages Past: Mad Medicine, mm. and uh, some of them are. Um, you know, that we have talked about already, like trepanation. Um, but there's, you know, and some other ones that kind of make sense, um, like Doug was talking about, you know, certain things make, make sense when you really delve into it, like curing coughs with snail syrup. I that one was snail syrup. Yeah. It says uh, one of the best remedies people had for sore throats and coughs was consuming the, how do you say this, mucilaginous essence of snails. Uh, from like 1728, uh, and the quote is, they abound with a slimy juice and are experienced very good in weaknesses and consumption, especially for children and tender constitutions. To make a syrup of snails, they garden snails early in the morning while the dew is upon them, one pound, take off their shells, split them, and with half a pound of sugar, put them in a bag, hang them in the cellar, and the syrup will melt and drop through, which keep for use. It possesses, in the best manner, all the virtues of snails. And that's, mm. that's the quote. All the best virtues of snails. Yeah. I know snails have virtues. <laughs> well, they're patient. Yeah. Uh. So, some of these other ones, like uh, curing hemorrhoids with hot irons. Uh, that's like kind of a, uh, yeah, that's a, a sort of primitive version of what is actually done now in uh, in hospitals where um, they'll drain the hemorrhoid with an incision and then cauterize the wound. 
This yeah. is kind of like the prim- the primitive version of that, where they basically just use a, a hot iron uh, to burn the hemorrhage off. It sounds. I awful. think I tried the garlic first. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hot iron and torture techniques. Yeah. yeah. But one of my uh, <clears throat> one of my favorites, uh, and I, I say favorite, you know, tongue in cheek, of course, um, is the fact that the Bayer. Uh, pharmaceuticals used to sell heroin in cough syrup mm-hmm. for for children. And there's if you you can just do a simple Google search on this, you know, Bayer and heroin, uh, and you can see there's a lot of old. Um, you can see the old jars with like the old timey kind of writing on them. It says, you know, heroin, Frederick Bayer and Company heroin, uh, or like a little poster with the kind of uh, pyramid of healing products: aspirin, lysitol, and heroin. Um, and it was <laughs> it was used for cops, uh, you know. Before, of course, it was discovered that it was you know one of the most addictive substances on the planet. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it just makes me it makes me curious, like how many uh, how many children were were given heroin, and like what were the repercussions from that that we you know probably are not aware of mm. throughout society. Jeez, almost well, kind of on that no, people. People still make tea of poppy, you know, the poppy flower, which is essentially what they make heroin out of. Sure. And there is poppy tea, and lots of people eat poppy seeds on their bagels. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No wonder those taste so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can't say no. But <laughs> <laughs> you can't eat just one. Yeah. Oh, and then, of, of course, uh, some of the other ones that I think, you know, of course, there's the ice pick uh, lobotomy, um, oh, mental God. illness with an ice ice pick to the brain. Uh, that's a classic. Oh, um, they also have uh, sugar coma for schizophrenia. Um, <laughs> that they would uh, deliberately induce uh, insulin comas uh, designed to change the personalities of people with schizophrenia. Unfortunately, they were the majority of them were actually fatal. Uh, which is mm-hmm. kind of sad, sorry. Yeah. Um, what, when was that? When, when were they doing that? Uh, I have to see. Last here. week. <laughs> Last week, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, strangely enough, it does say that uh, it it lasted as long as the 1940s, into the 40s. Wow. Mm-hmm. I wonder how many patients had to die before they decided it wasn't a good idea. Yeah, unfortunately, probably quite a few. Like you say, there's also mm-hmm. another, another one of my favorite. Another one of my favorites on this list is uh, tobacco smoke enema, uh, and it was actually it was actually considered to be a cure all, uh, kind of like a panacea for anybody that was sick with any condition. Kind of their go to mm-hmm. was to uh, to take a little. Um, uh, what do you what do you call it when like the the instrument that's like a, an accordion that you that you stoke a fire with? Mm-hmm. Uh, bellows. I'm blanking it. The bellows, yeah. Bellows, like a little yeah. mini bellows, and you know, fill it with tobacco smoke, and so you're yeah. literally blowing smoke up someone's ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I wonder. I wonder that's where the expression came from. Yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> oh boy! 
Well, actually, speaking of, uh, of, of where uh, sayings come from, Zoya was actually telling me that there's an old folk remedy. If you get bitten by a dog, you're supposed to take the hair from that dog, like actually cut some hair off the dog. And I think, I can't remember what you do with it. I think you, I think you just put it on the wound and maybe make a, a poultice yeah. of it. Um, and that's supposed to, um, to help with the, the healing of the wound. And apparently that's where the term hair of the dog came from. So the, uh, the idea that um, if you're suffering from a hangover, from indulging too much, you have another little drink to kind of, uh, to kind of take away some of those uh, hangover symptoms. So it's called hair of the dog that bit you because mm. you're doing the same kind of thing, like, you know, taking, taking more of that, uh, that poison <laughs> to be able to cure yourself. It's just, a, it's, it's homeopathy, right? Like, like treats like. <laughs> like treats like. Exactly. <laughs> Except that in that case, like makes like worse. Yeah. I would think so. I've never actually tried that hair of the dog trick. Just hope that hair of the dog is on a raw food diet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see some. Uh, well, here's. Oh, go ahead, Jeff. Here's a pretty nasty one, but I'm actually kind of a fan of it. Not that I've <laughs> ever seen it in action, though I would like to. It's a maggot debridement therapy. Wow. So people uh, who have these wounds really bad and they won't heal, like a lot of like really bad uh, sores or diabetic ulcers or uh, just wounds from trauma that won't heal and become necrotic and have a bunch of dead uh, tissue on them. So there's actually medicinal maggots that they grow in a lab. They uh, get the flies and they hatch them in the lab and then they sterilize the maggots and they have them in these little uh, sachets, I guess. And uh, you put pack, pack them in the wounds and wrap it and then you let it stay on the wound for up to 72 hours and... The the maggots, they eat all of the dead tissue, and then they let out some kind of uh, digestive enzyme in their saliva that disinfects the wound. Mm. And, yeah, like after, you know, up to 72 hours, they've probably eaten their fill or eaten all the dead tissue away. And at that point, you open up the, the, the gauze wrap, and you take the, uh, you take the maggots out, and... The wound is clean and it's able to heal. Yes, wow. actually, I saw a documentary about it, and I saw it like live, so to speak, the results before and after, and yeah, it was really remarkable. They did yeah. a pretty good job cleaning the wound. It was like, oh my god, I, I you know, you can get those results only with curatage. You know, it's, it's a surgical procedure. It's basically just like remove all the mm-hmm. tissue, but you know, and mm-hmm. it's very traumatic. So they don't use the maggots to do it, and they produce, like, enzymes that promote healing. That's much better, definitely. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I think um, back in World War One or Two, um, doctors noticed that the the soldiers who had wounds that accidentally got infested with maggots did a lot better than the soldiers whose wounds were not infested. Huh. So then they decided to put it into practice. Jeez. But I guess it kind of fell out of favor because antibiotics and uh, surgical techniques came into yeah. favor. Yeah. Well, I have a story. I have a 
an anecdotal story from Costa Rica, you know, um, that, you know, the healthcare system, this was in the late 90s, you know, it's a, it's a fairly good healthcare system compared um, compared to the speaking, and, uh, but we didn't have enough resources for a lot of stuff. Like, for example, in the U.S. or Europe, they will use, like, special colloidal stuff or silver stuff to clean up wounds. And mm. we didn't have anything. So we just packed wounds with honey. Open mm. wounds, like uh, complications after a cesarean cut or something that got um, complicated with a um, bacteria, streptococci, or staph that is, like, meat-eating bacteria. Yes, they needed um, hardcore antibiotics, but what really worked really well is just packing the wound with honey. You know, the whole wound, you know, it was like like half a liter of honey. Yeah. <laughs> and it really did have great results as well. Yeah, there's a lot of natural antimicrobial components in honey. Um, that can that can help with that. Especially there's a there's a type of honey out there called manuka honey, um, and it's uh, bees who have fed on the manuka flowers or got pollen from the manuka flowers, and those uh, there's a lot of antimicrobial properties in the manuka plant as well, and that uh, that transfers over into the honey. So yeah, there's 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 a lot of uh, good medicinal uses for honey actually. Just uh, it's really high in sugar, so don't eat it. Yeah, yeah. The, the honey one so is not that crazy. We uh... We actually had a case here uh, where um, my girlfriend ripped her finger open, and uh, you know it was it was really bad. It was like a really big split in the tip of the finger, and put raw honey on it, and it healed within about a week. Um, I mean, it was really miraculous; like completely healed over. So we've actually kept raw honey on on hand just for that purpose, you know, for cuts and things like that. Yeah. It's not ingested. It's just like topical. <laughs> yeah. 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 I was going to ask, like, that. if there are, are deep or puncture wounds, can you put the honey inside? That would seem to be kind of weird to yeah. me. Yeah. Just... Yeah. No, the complications that we saw, for example, it was like like a cesarean cut, and there was an infection, uh-huh. and the, there was the like the whole wound was open, you know. Uh, you could see all the tissues underneath, and um, that is very difficult to heal. Like um, second intention, you know, can take a lot of time. So what uh, what what was generally done is to pack the whole thing. That's why like half, up up to half a liter of honey could fit in, because <laughs> it's a lot of underneath tissue, and just pack it full with honey. And closed it well, and there was the joke because in Costa Rica we had lots of ants, you know, and little creatures that like honey. Mm-hmm. So I feel it well. <laughs> that was the main concern of the patient. Wouldn't the ants come over my <laughs> Anyway, and, uh, and then the honey will do such a great job that even some surgeons will attend uh, closing up the wound and it will, uh, you know, like a normal cut. Yeah, where you go to the emergency room and you have some stitches to close up the wound, they yeah. will attempt that because it was so clean and you know looking so good. So we'll oh, wow. heal in time. Yeah. So the honey yeah. can actually go in and be underneath the skin, like inside yeah. the body, not just on it. Yeah, okay. it was directly in contact with the subcutaneous tissue. It was, 
And later, you know, we, yeah, when we clean up the wound, yes, we will clean up with physiological solution. And uh, we will not even use Puritash, nothing surgically, just like remove the fibrin that is built out mm-hmm. the white uh, fibrin. And then it will be cleaned up again and repack again with honey and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of bee stuff, apparently bee stings can be quite helpful for some things too. There's like the bees, the venom from bees or wasps uh, apparently has anti-tumor properties. So there's uh, yeah. we we had an article on it on Sod a little while ago. I I, I don't have it up right now, but uh, apparently taking bee venom can be uh, quite helpful in cancer cancer therapy. Um, you know, I don't I don't know how uh, how stringent the studies have been done on this kind of thing, but made me think that uh, if you're diagnosed with cancer, you could just go out with a, a baseball bat and start beating on a wasp nest, and maybe uh, <laughs> you get, you get uh, therapeutic benefits from that. Well, I'm going to raise my hand again here and say that this is a wacky remedy that I have tried. Really? <laughs> this was, yeah, this was about uh, maybe in 2007 or so, because you guys have all heard of fatty lipoma, which is like a benign, like fatty tumor that people get on their bodies. Mm, so yeah. I have mm-hmm. one of those, and I was reading about bee therapy, whatever. <laughs> so, <laughs> There was this place that was like an hour away from my house where they did it. So I went there, and uh, I can't remember all the details, but it was like a place attached to a little dinky little health food store. There was some dingy little guy that kept some bees there, and then some other people all sitting there on folding chairs. And um, they come in, and he asks you if you're allergic to bees. I think they're supposed to test you. I can't remember if they tested me first to see if I'd have a reaction. But um, mm-hmm. so I just <laughs> exposed my shoulder, and he put like about eight bee stings into the lipoma. And of course, you know, it it didn't work. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It didn't hurt that bad, but uh, it didn't do it. It's just something that I wanted to try. Yeah. Just because, like, before I said I'm a complete idiot. <laughs> and so I tried it. Yeah. yeah, I'm adventurous and I like to out. But um, it didn't do anything oh. whatsoever. Well, I've had people come into my store asking for bee venom honey. Like, apparently there's honey you can get that has the actual bee venom in it, and you can use that therapeutically. Mm-hmm. So it might be an easier way to do it. Mm-hmm. I've tried a if, uh, bee did, pollen. What are you going to say? Well, how, how did they uh, accomplish the, the bee state? Did they just, like, put them in a jar on your skin and then kind of whack the jar? Um, I think he just held the bee with his finger. and <laughs> With his finger. <laughs> and he poked me with it. <laughs> Maybe it would have worked better if the bees did it of their own free will. <laughs> <laughs> A little sore and itchy for a little while after that, but it really didn't do anything. But I've uh, I've tried bee pollen too. I can't remember exactly why I tried that then. Maybe it's for the was it bee pollen has bee vitamins. (laughs) But uh, the first time I took it, it was fine. And then like the second time I took it. I got so nauseous. I was actually driving at the time. I had to pull over and throw up. <laughs> oh, no. Well, Jeez. 
I mean, there's lots of different bee products that they have. You know, there's the royal jelly, which is the mm-hmm. um, the, the substance that they feed to the queen of the, the bee colony. Um, there's, yeah, bee pollen. There's all kinds of different bee products, and some people swear by them. They, they just use them as kind of like a tonic to take on a daily basis type thing. They've even talked about taking bee pollen as a way of getting over environmental allergies. If you're allergic to uh, pollen from different plants, um, and you get you always get like kind of hay fever or something like that. Apparently, uh, bee pollen can be helpful for some people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's I've, probably uh, why I took it. Mm-hmm. I have an anecdote as well, um, similar to Gabby's anecdote about uh, honey, and I, I believe I had mentioned this on one of our shows in the past. Um, but uh, it, this one has always fascinated me that I had a friend who got uh, a really bad gash on his leg, like a really deep, open gash. And uh, instead of going to get it, you know, like going to the hospital or anything, he uh, rinsed it out with apple cider vinegar and then packed it Mm -hmm. with sea salt and then wrapped the Mm -hmm. bandage around it. And, of course, you know, it hurt quite badly, um, but it actually healed very quickly. Um, He said Mm -hmm. it healed completely over. So. But that was an interesting one. That's where you got to bite down on a little wooden stick when you're doing that one. Yeah. Hmm. Let's see. Uh, from this list that I was looking at here, too, there's another interesting one. Similar to the uh, the maggots uh, was the tapeworm diet. Uh, oh. And <laughs> I don't have I don't have a date on this one, but the. Uh, the poster there's a there's an image of a poster here that looks like it might be from like the the 20s maybe um and it says eat 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 and always stay thin that's the enemy that is shortening your life banished how with sanitized tapeworms jar packs <laughs> so oh my God. Uh, oh, it also says in a very nice uh, cursive script at the bottom it says easy to swallow <laughs> 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 so I guess yeah, if you can just take some tapeworms and then you can eat whatever you want. <laughs> Secure for the modern obesity di- uh, epidemic. Yeah. <laughs> and there are people that are desperate enough to try it. Let's see. We also have uh, malaria as a treatment for syphilis. Um, oh, come on. That was, that was also also from the from the twenties. But a, a side effect of malaria is that it kills syphilis. You just have to go through the malaria part. Yeah. It kills and then what? It never Sorry, did you? I didn't understand. It kills what? Oh, syphilis. Syphilis. Oh. <laughs> so we also uh uh mummy powder for for health. Come um that from in the twelfth in how what's that? From actual mummies? From actual mummies, yep. In the in the twelfth century, um people uh, uh in uh the Middle East would uh dig up mummies and grind them up and use the powder oh. for various uh, health problems. Oh, my oh. God. <laughs> really desperate, right? So, 
<laughs> yeah, you must be. Yeah. And again, you have to wonder why anybody tried that in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's also uh, bloodletting, which I think is is another interesting one because that is actually still used uh, for different conditions. For conditions, um, mm-hmm. and I want to say, is it uh, is it hemochromatosis that bloodletting can be used yeah, for? Yeah, that's it. Okay. Yeah. But that uh, this is Doug. You had mentioned when we were talking before the show the the idea of humors and and bad humors. Um, mm. And that's that's related to the bloodletting that they uh, that in at the time you know um, talking you know like 16th century 15th 16th century um, that they thought that the, the letting the blood was letting the illness out of the body um, mm-hmm. and that they were clearing clearing out the bad humors um, yeah so yeah. yeah it was basically like they they had this model. Of, of medicine, and this persisted for 2,000 years, so it's, it wasn't even like just a, um, you know, a short blip on the radar as far as uh, medical knowledge goes. But they basically thought there was four different components in the body, four different liquids. There was black bile, yellow bile, phlegm, and blood, and that these things all had to be in balance. And if they got out of balance by one humor being uh, having being in either in proliferation or in uh, sorry in excess or um, not enough of it, um, then that's when disease would happen. So they had different methods for kind of getting rid of some of the uh, the certain um, humors in the body. And yeah, bloodletting was one of them. If you were if you were um, had an excess of blood, they would uh, basically bleed the patient um, to try and get rid of it. And you know, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there are some situations like you were saying, hemochromatosis, where like bleeding might actually be a good thing. But I know. Um, Samuel Hahnemann, who was the inventor of, uh, of homeopathy, uh, one of his motivations for developing the system of medicine is that the, the you know, it was so, the, the system of medicine at the time was so primitive. Uh, he talks about cases where people were being bled to death, actually, because, you know, they weren't getting better by the bleeding. Uh, so rather than reassess, <laughs> the doctor would just be like, bleed them more, bleed them more, we got to get more blood out, and, and they would die. So, mm-hmm. it, uh, you know, it was all these kind of archaic principles that they were basing their medicine on, um, you know, while maybe in some situations it might actually be beneficial, um, you know, he basically, uh, Hahnemann was accusing his, uh, his fellow doctors of basically being barbarians and that, uh, you know, they, they needed to really reassess the system of medicine because things were so uh, crazy. But that's where the whole leeches thing came from, you know, putting leeches on somebody to therapeutically bleed them. Um, but they would actually mm-hmm. like, cut, a, cut a vein too and, and, and let them just bleed out. Um, Mm. Yeah. And is that where the term came? You're bleeding me dry. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. Well, yeah, that seems to be another one of these cases where, uh, you know, the the practice itself is essentially kind of stuck around, but it's at, at the very least is kind of sanitized now. Mm. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's our our kind of cursory list of some of the weird uh, remedies that have been around for some time. Uh, Can I talk about another oh. one? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had one more that I forgot too. Go ahead, go ahead. 
Well, everybody's heard of fasting, different types of fasting, uh, juice fasting, broth fasting, fat fasting, bulletproof, bulletproof coffee, water fasting. So this was years ago again when we were <laughs> first getting into ketosis. So um, <clears throat> they said it was good if you wanted to, like, jump start getting into ketosis, you can have, like, a two- or three-day water fast. So I did that, <laughs> and all the while, you know, I had nothing to do. I wasn't eating anything, so I had some time on my hands. So I was reading about fasting, and I came upon this website that talked about dry fasting, and that mm. is where you fast for up to three days without eating or drinking anything. Oh. So <laughs> make any. No. I know, but it's well, supposed to give your body like the ultimate cleanse because your your cells just go crazy and just start eating all your your dead or your tissues or tissues that need to be recycled, and you still have water like in your cells. So this guy was describing how he dry fasted for three days and um, he would urinate and it would just smell like pure sulfur and he would have these really awful smelling bowel movements and diarrhea. And at one point he would like pass out and come back to and his muscles would be aching so much that he couldn't walk and he was just dying like a thirst. He was thinking of water all the time and his mouth was so dry. So of course I thought this was a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd already gone like maybe two and a half days, almost close to three days with the water fast. So I was like, hmm, maybe I just won't drink any water for a little. <laughs> See what happens. <laughs> so I did that. And probably around the time when I was like, hmm, maybe this isn't such a good idea. I'm really thirsty and I'm hungry and it's time to break my fast now. Right when I started thinking that, I got really, really nauseous. <laughs> I started throwing uh, up. Oh, no. And then by that point, I couldn't eat anyway because I was too sick, so I just went to bed. And then next morning, right. I broke my fast. Wow. <laughs> and how, how long did you say that you made it? Well, how long did you make the it? water fast was probably, it was three days, but as far as not drinking water, that was probably about eight hours. That's <laughs> <laughs> I love that the guy was so tortured that you felt you had to try it. <laughs> but he said when it was over, it was like the best thing that ever happened to him. He felt so good. And his first drink of water after uh, doing the dry fast was like being touched by the hand of God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Wow. That's pretty wild. But, um, let's see here. The uh, the last one that I have that I had forgotten to mention, uh, uh, this is on Wikipedia. If you look up Mellified Man, uh, M-E-L-L-I-F-I-E-D, Mellified Man, um, it says Mellified Man or Human Mummy Confection was a legendary <laughs> medical substance created by steeping a human cadaver in honey. Uh, the, the concoction is mentioned only in Chinese sources. Uh, most significantly, uh, the 16th century, the books of the 16th century Chinese pharmacologist Li Shizhen. Um, this is he apparently was uh, giving a second-hand account, but reports 
story that some elderly men in Arabia nearing the end of their lives would submit themselves to a process of mummification in honey to create a healing confection. Um, the process differed from a simple body donation because the aspect of self-sacrifice mellification process would ideally start before death. The donor would stop eating any food other than honey, going as far as to bathe in honey. Uh, shortly, his feces, sweat, and saliva would actually consist of honey. Uh, and when the diet actually fi- when the diet finally proved fatal, the donor's body would be placed in a stone coffin filled with honey. Um, mm. And then after after about a century, so this, these guys had long term planning here. Um, <laughs> yeah. after, after a century or so, the contents would have turned into a sort of confection reputedly capable of healing broken limbs and other ailments. Uh, the confection would then be sold in street markets and as a hard to find item. Uh, with a hefty price, and that was mellified man. Mellified man. So there you go. Oh boy. <laughs> so when you're when you're nearing the end of your life, and you know you're going to go, <laughs> just need to need to send yourself off with honey, and then you will be you'll be beneficial to your great great grandchildren <laughs> as, nice. as mellified man. <laughs> oh my god I just love the 100 year timeline yeah <laughs> it's yeah, not like let your star for 10 days yeah <laughs> <laughs> place and cover for 100 years <laughs> make sure to label it <laughs> yeah yes put the date on the bottle <laughs> All right. Well, let's see. Let's. Uh, we, we have a segment from Zoya. Uh, unfortunately, she was not able to uh, to record something herself for us today, but she is sharing with us a, uh, a clip about um, pancreatitis in your pets and how to prevent pancreatitis. Um, so we're going to listen to that. Uh, it's about six minutes. And then when we come back, um, sort of in the spirit of the show today, We'll have a recipe for you of uh, pickled pork, uh, which ends up looking like brains in a jar, so that's kind of fun. Um, <laughs> right so time for Halloween. To, <laughs> yep. <laughs> so here's some, uh, some info about uh, pancreatitis in your pets, and we'll be back right after this. Hello, it's Dr. Karen Becker, and today we're going to discuss a very important topic, pancreatitis. Pancreatitis is inflammation of your pet's pancreas. So itis means inflammation and pancreas is inflammation of. So the term pancreatitis is uh, deemed for inflamed pancreases of both dogs and cats that can come about for a whole multitude of a variety of different reasons. Pancreatitis recently in veterinary medicine has been linked with a lot more symptoms that we previously thought to be true. So what we're realizing about dogs and cats is that fever, lethargy, abdominal pain, anorexia, vomiting, diarrhea, all can have its roots in pancreatitis. What's even more interesting about pancreatitis is that inflammation of the pancreas can come about either very, very mildly, it can be acute or chronic, which means sudden or protracted. It can be very, very mild or it can be actually life-threatening and can, and can be fatal in some cases. 
inflammation of the pancreas is becoming more recognized as a problem in veterinary medicine. And in fact, just recently on autopsy, brand new research states that up to 40% of kitties that were autopsied had lesions of pancreatitis. And those cats didn't die of any underlying predisposition to a pancreatic problem. So we're recognizing that the pancreas is not only vital organ, but we're seeing a lot more problems with pancreatic inflammation than we have been before in veterinary medicine. I think part of that, honestly, is because we're checking more. But what we know to be true is the pancreas has two vital functions. It secretes insulin, which balances blood sugar, and it secretes digestive enzymes, amylase, lipase, and protease. Now, I have to be honest, as a holistic veterinarian, I don't think it's fluke or happenstance that the pancreas has become more and more taxed as an organ because of its roles. We know that the high-carbohydrate-based diets that most dogs and cats eat are very, very taxing to the insulin levels, and then that, and in turn, part of the pancreatic's function. But in addition, the foods that we feed our dogs and cats are entirely processed and devoid of natural enzymes, which help supplement the pet's diet and in turn the pancreas. So the pancreas really can live in a state of chronic inflammation and stress because the average American pet diet is devoid of any amylase, lipase, and protease. And each canned or kibbled diet that you feed your pet causes the pancreas to, um, to have to secrete an abundance of digestive enzymes. And if the pancreas is called upon to secrete enzymes, and if it can't produce enough enzymes, the condition of pancreas results. So certainly there are, there are some drugs that are well known to incite episodes of pancreatitis. For instance, anti-seizure drugs like potassium bromide or uh, phenobarbital are well known to cause pancreatitis issues. Those are drug-induced episodes. Other drugs like prednisone, which is a steroid well known to cause pancreatitis, or even uh, Lasix or furosemide, which is a diuretic, has been implicated in pancreatitis attacks in dogs and cats. But Diet also plays into low-grade recurrent pancreatitis. Many cats and dogs eat a diet that is much too high in fat, and we know that fat is an inciting cause also of creating low-grade recurrent pancreatitis. The other thing you have to think about is there are some animals, like miniature schnauzers, that have a genetic predisposition to having pancreatitis. So if you've been through the nightmare of pancreatitis, you know all too well that number one, it's very, very scary. Number two, many, many animals require hospitalization and very intense medical therapy to pull them through it. And oftentimes, uh, it's, it can be repeated. So the pancreatitis episode, the first time your pet gets it, and you can spend thousands of dollars uh, getting your pet stabilized, I wish I could tell you that just putting your pet on a low residue or low fat diet will take care of it, but the fact is many pets end up with recurrent pancreatitis. So how veterinarians diagnose pancreatitis is a blood test called a PLI test. Um, and that is um, a, a blood test that helps identify the, the pancreatic um, immunoreactivity or the, the lipase levels that cause inflammation within the pancreas. So your veterinarian may suggest that you run a PLI test to determine if your pet is dealing with a low-grade or subclinical pancreatitis. There's also two enzymes, both lipase and amylase, that can be elevated on traditional blood work. But most veterinarians re rely on the, on the PLI test for accurate and, and quick diagnostics to show that your pet is dealing with pancreatitis. My recommendation, if your pet has failed the PLI, which means that PLI levels are elevated beyond what they should be for your dog or cat, is that you do seek medical attention if your pet is vomiting 
lethargic, dealing with anorexia, or has a fever. But after the crisis has passed, the very best insurance that you can buy that can afford your pet the opportunity to not repeat an episode of pancreatitis is supply to them a rich source of digestive enzymes. We know that dogs and cats' pancreases cannot secrete enough digestive enzymes to adequately process their foods. And by you supplying a rich source of digestive enzymes in their diet, which means a supplement, you can help reduce the amount of stress and strain the pancreas is under to adequately come up with enough enzymes to process their food. So Mercola Healthy Pets is coming out with an excellent enzyme that I recommend that if you have pets that are dealing with pancreatitis, have dealt with pancreatitis, or you are trying to uh, reduce the likelihood of your pet exhibiting symptoms of pancreatitis, you adding digestive enzymes into the mix is a perfect way to help avoid complications dealing with pancreatitis. All right. Well, thanks, Zoya, for sharing that bit of content with us. Um, that was uh, the veterinarian, Karen Becker, and uh, some interesting info there. Of course, uh, yet another um, confirmation that the uh, standard kind of dry kibble diet is not good for pets and that we should be getting them more towards a, uh, towards a raw meat diet. Mm -hmm. So... Um, speaking of raw meat, uh, our recipe for today is uh, pickled pork. And uh, like I said, this is kind of along our lines of like weird remedies and uh, folky kind of stuff. Um, so I have been curious, like I've been kind of delving into the world of uh, charcuterie and making uh, pancetta and stuff like that. And I have not actually tried it yet. I'm just trying to get my research done uh, before I you know, ruin an entire pork belly. <laughs> so, um, but uh, I, I am pickling some pork in the fridge right now, and it is starting to look a little brainy. Uh, so hopefully it'll be done in a, in a few days. Um, <clears throat> but this, uh, this recipe um, is inspired by uh, some Creole recipes uh, from New Orleans, and uh, this kind of traditional way is to uh, end up uh, eating it with red beans and rice. Now, since we kind of advocate the uh, the low-carb uh, diet, um, you know, you probably wouldn't want to use red beans and rice, but uh, you could mix this with, um, you know, whatever else. Uh, or, you know, even go, go kind of like, quote-unquote, whole hog and have it with some pork rinds. That might be pretty good. <laughs> um, you know? Um, I'm sure there's a, a number of ways uh, to try this. I personally uh, intend on trying it with some sauerkraut. We'll see how that comes out. Mm -hmm. um, but the, uh, this is not the recipe itself, but I thought that this was really interesting. This is kind of the inspiration for it on this site uh, where I found this NOLA Cuisine, uh, N-O-L-A Cuisine.com. Um, so the original recipe is from the Picayune's Creole Cookbook of 1901. Uh, so this is 115, 114 years old. Um, it says pork should be pickled about 20 hours after killing. And, uh, of course, this is when, you know, there wasn't really refrigeration, and so they had to find a different way to preserve the meat. Uh, so it is pickled always in sufficient quantity to last for some time, for if proper care is taken, it will keep one year after pickling. But it may also be pickled in small quantities of three or four pounds at a time. Um, Two 25 pounds of pork allow one ounce of saltpeter. Uh, pulverize thoroughly and mix with a sufficient quantity of salt to thoroughly salt the pork. Cut the pork into pieces of about two pounds each. 
slash each, each piece through the skin and then rub thoroughly with the salt and saltpeter mixture until the meat is thoroughly penetrated. Mash cloves very fine and grind allspice. Chop onions. Take a small barrel and place at the bottom a layer of salt and a layer of onions and sprinkle over this a layer of the spices and minced bay leaves. Place on this a layer of pork, pack tightly, and then above this a layer of salt and seasoning and so on until the layers of pork and seasoning um, are used up or reach the top of the barrel. Conclude with a layer of minced herbs um, and a layer of salt on the very top and then cover with a board on which a heavy weight must be placed to press down the meat. will be ready for use in 10 to 12 days. Hmm. So that's the, uh, that's the classic recipe of pickling 25 pounds of pork in a barrel, which may be <laughs> fun to try someday, but... <laughs> <laughs> that would be a that's a pricey it's a pricey experiment these days. Um, yeah. So this uh, this is the one that I'm actually trying right now, which uses uh, vinegar and some salt uh, instead of all salt. Um, so this is two pounds very fresh pork. Uh, this person used spare rib tips, boned and cut into strips three inches long by one inch thick. Um, I used a section of of pork belly. Um, basically two two strips that were about five inches long um, by about two inches wide. Um, one quart of white vinegar, uh, one half cup mustard seeds, six whole cloves, uh, six whole allspice, one half teaspoon crushed red pepper, three fresh bay leaves, six whole garlic cloves, one half of a medium onion coarsely chopped, one tablespoon of salt, one tablespoon of black peppercorns, and it says here one pinch of pink meat cure. Now, the, mm. the pink meat cure is not actually necessary, uh, and this is something that we've been talking about. We might do a show on this in the future. Um, you you know, most people don't have, like, saltpeter or the, the, you know, cure number one or preg powder laying around in their kitchen. So if you don't have that, this is actually not necessary because you're um, – you're steeping the pork in a pure solution of vinegar, and uh, the vinegar is enough to keep that preserved so that it won't go bad in the fridge. Um, so it says, add all the ingredients except the pork to a two-quart saucepan, bring to a boil, boil for four minutes, and then place in the container to cool in the refrigerator. When the mixture is completely cold, then add the pork. So I basically stuffed the pork into a one-quart mason jar uh, and then poured the cooled mixture over top of it. Um, make sure that the pork is completely submerged under the brine. Um, kind of mash it down to make sure any air bubbles come out, cover, and then put it in the refrigerator for four days. Um, and there, there is some, uh, some debate in the comments here as to whether or not you can eat it, you know, straight out of the jar. Personally, that's something that I, I wouldn't try after only four days. Um, I have in the past have done pickled pike, uh, northern pike, um, mm -hmm. which is basically raw fish uh, steeped in a vinegar solution. And that I did eat straight out of the jar, um, but it, it for like a month. Um, mm -hmm. And that was a sufficient time for the vinegar to kill any bacteria that was in the, in the fish meat. Um, so that one I felt a little bit better about. But pork, after four days, I'm not so sure about that. Um, <laughs> so I guess you know use use your best judgment on that one. Um, but in the in the comments in the recipe, some people say that they did eat it straight out of the jar. Other people said that they took it out and then would boil it for 
um, like bring water to a boil and then lower to a simmer um, for anywhere from an hour and a half to two hours and then take that out and it's become tenderized and you can kind of break it up and then use it in, you know, in your beans and rice or with sauerkraut or whatever else. Uh, And the boiling Mm -hmm. also leaches a lot of the salt out and so it's not uh, an overpowering salty meat. Um, So that's that's pickled pork and it does look uh, very um, kind of mad science-y in the jar there. (laughs) It's it's, it's fun to, to show people when they come over. What I'm making. <laughs> so, uh, I guess if uh, people want to try pickled pork, that's a way to do it. It actually took a little bit to find. Um, there's not very many recipes online for pickled pork. It seems to be kind of something that's of an old world recipe that's gone by the wayside. So, um, mm. but you know, do your searching, see what you can find, uh, and you know, if nothing else, um, just give it a shot and see what happens. But, I, again, I just want to be clear that I do personally not recommend eating it straight out of the jar. I would boil it mm-hmm. just to be on the safe side. You don't want to get botulism, you know, from an experiment. <laughs> yeah. So. All right. Well, that's uh, that's our show for today. Unless you guys have uh, anything else to add, I think we'll call it a show. So um, we really thank everybody for tuning in and for listening and for our chat room participants and thanks very much to Al for calling in. That was really cool to to have a caller. Uh, so hopefully we <laughs> will get more of those in the future. Um, and be sure to, uh, to tune back in next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern. Um, and this weekend also don't forget the other two shows on the SOT Radio Network. Uh, tomorrow, The Truth Perspective at 2 p.m. Eastern and Sunday, Behind the Headlines, also at 2 p.m. Eastern. Um, So again, thanks very much uh, for tuning in, and we'll see everybody next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.